today I want to talk a little bit about the people of God and maybe bring out some aspects of the people of God, that body of people that uh, uh, might, uh, might change the way you think about the, the people of God. As we saw in the bulletin there, the, uh, as our scripture reading, I'm going to be preaching out of 1 Peter chapter 2, and I'd like to just read those first 10 verses again uh, that we had earlier. Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking, as newborn babes, desire the pure milk of the word, that you may grow thereby, if indeed you've tasted that the Lord is gracious, coming to him as a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also, as living stones, are being up, built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, and precious, and he who believes on him will no, by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. They stumble, being disobedient to the word to which they were also appointed. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who were once not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, your word is deep, it is profound, it is beyond us. But Father, by your spirit, you've promised that you would lead us in spirit and truth. Father, we pray that you'd open this text, protect us from handling it poorly, apply it and spread it into the corners of our lives, and cause us to rejoice in what it is you've done. Father, we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I heard uh, Doug Jones speak on this many, many years ago, and it, it, uh, it's a, a topic which stuck in my head and has always stuck in my head since I heard it. And uh, that's kind of why I wanted to bring it, because it, I, I believe it's, it's fairly profound. You're a chosen generation. You're a royal priest of the holy nation. We, we don't really think a lot about um, the attributes of our people, who we are. But I'll ask you this question. Who are your people? Who are your people? A lot of times that's not a question that people like to even ask because it sounds like what you're going to do is then you're going you're to draw lines and say, this is us, that's you, we're not you, you're not us. And so sometimes thinking about having a people is frowned upon, it's looked down, it's something that creates distinctions and we want everything to be equal, we want everybody to be equal. And, and there's, a, there's a hint of wisdom in that, but not a lot. Who are your people? As a culture, we're, we seem to be seeking out for identity, looking for uh, who am I. There are shows on TV. Um, who do you think you are, as a matter of fact, is a, is a show on TV, which is actually pretty cool because they bring in a, they bring in a celebrity, and then they will um, dig into their past and find out who their, who their ancestors were. You, typically, the person only knows one or two generations, but then they go back and they find out that, wow, my... My ancestors are scoundrels, or um, 
uh, my ancestors are, uh, are nobility, or whatever it may be. It's very interesting. Um, and people want to know who they're made up of. They want to know who they are. Or uh, another one is finding your roots, where they, they do some of the same things with genealogical tools. But uh, they actually bring in DNA. So not only do they study some of the documents and uh, ocean manifest and census records, but then they also look at your DNA. And I, I do remember one time a, uh, a lady in there um, checked her DNA and found out that her father wasn't her father, that there was actually a 0% chance that the guy you think is your dad is not your dad, and your mom's not your mom. And she was surprised by that. And uh, uh, like, uh, okay. Um, but uh, anyway, so it's, it's interesting as we search for who we are and what, who we're connected to. And, and Peter brings home this, this point of being a people. But what's the context here? Well, Peter's writing this letter to a group of Christians that are dispersed. They've been, uh, they've been persecuted. They were dispersed in persecution. And they find that, that where they've gone to, they're being persecuted there as well. They're being cheated and they're being um, harmed for their faith, for being Christians who they are. They're in a, in a large region. Um, north of Israel, uh, north of the Mediterranean, Bithynia and uh, uh, Galatia, that area. He's writing to churches in a group, in a large area. It's not to a particular church. Peter's not writing to the Romans or the, or the Philippians. He's writing to a large area. And it's as though he's gotten some sort of a report about what's going on with these people. Um, in some cases, in some uh, scriptures, we have... Uh, we have even reference to, uh, I'm responding to the letter that you previously wrote. Like um, uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, uh, chapter 7, he says, um, Now regarding the things which you wrote, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. So you can tell that Paul has a letter and he's responding to it. Well, uh, Peter doesn't make any reference to a letter from them. And it wouldn't actually make a whole lot of sense to have received a letter from them because they are spread over a, a wide area. It's not like they're going to somehow gather together and have some sort of consensus and create a letter that they're going to send to Peter because it's a, it's a very large area. But he's, he's got some sort of report. He, he knows what they're going through. And instead of ans- answering specific questions, you can tell by what he talks about that these are the things that are, that are uh, coming to the people that live in, that er- in those areas. And Peter's writing to encourage them about that. I'd encourage you to read chapter 1 sometime. We won't have time this morning to do it, but he, he knows what they're going through, and he tries to he write, writes this book and addresses it to them to address those issues that they have. But at, at a quick glance, at a very quick read of, of the book, if you read it a little too fast, it seems like Peter's missed the mark. It seems like I'll give you an example. So it's as though there's this plea from the people saying, Peter, help us, we're scattered. And and Peter's response is, yes, but you've been born again to a a new living hope. People say, we're being persecuted. They're, They're after us. They're persecuting us because we're Christians. You believe in a God that you can't see because he's absent. The people struggle with their faith. They're, they're being tested in their faith. They're losing their faith. And Peter says, well, be holy like God is and stop being deceitful and speaking lies. 
Okay. The people are losing their confidence. They're being shaken in their confidence. Jesus is a cornerstone, and you're a building. No, wait. You're bricks. You're living bricks. And, you know, you could imagine the people when they get the letter going, maybe we shouldn't be taking this up with Peter. Um, hmm. But, but we do believe in the errancy of Scripture. We do believe that the, in the inspiration of Scripture. And so Peter is giving them the answers that they need. But that's why I say with a quick cursory look at it, you might think that Peter doesn't get it. But he does. And the theme of what his response to these people is, is community. It's a community. We believe that God gives instruction where it's necessary. When God tells the husband how to act, it's because they are tempted not to act that way. When God gives instruction uh, to a wife, he gives instruction because their temptation is to not act that way. Instruction is always given where instruction is necessary. And the things that Peter tries to encourage them with is exactly what they need to hear. They are a people. They are part of a community. But how does that fit in? At the end here, we're going to go through these, these four things that the people are pleading for, trying to get answers from Peter from, uh, regarding, and, and I think you'll see how his answers fit. P- these people are scattered, and they need each other. They're being persecuted, and they need each other. It says in Ecclesiastes that two is better than one. If one falls, one can pick him up. It's good to be in a community. Who are your people? Who are your people? Everybody has a people, right? Everybody has a people. We, we, we come from people. We look like people. You look like your mother and your father. You are raised in mother and father. You have uh, your language reveals your people. Your clothing reveals your people. The way you think about politics, the way you think about your na- next door neighbor, that reveals a people. We all have this sense in which we are a people. And we want to know who our people are. We want, it, we're British, we're Scottish, we're Zulu, we're, we're uh, Mexican, we're, we're Asian, we're whatever it may be. We all come from some sort of a, a cultural tradition or a racial tradition, and th- those are who I'm connected to. But the the question is, is there any eternal hope in that? Is there an eternal hope in you being Italian? Is there an eternal hope in you um, being part of even a group, say a a service group? Say you're you're a member of Rotary. Are these your people? Are the Italians your people? Are the Zulu your people? Are, Are those your people? Well... It's interesting here. In verse 9, he says, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who were once not a people, but are now the people of God. So, whatever it was, All these people had come from people. They all had mothers and fathers. They all had national and and, and cultural traditions. They all had those kind of connections. They wore clothes. They had had meals that they liked that were uh, 
or part of their cultural traditions. But the scripture says here that you are not a people. So there's some sort of distinction here. There's a, there's a difference in the way that this is a people compared to the people that we all know you have that. You all have those connections. But in God's mind, no, you weren't a people. Well, what's the distinction here? You were not a people, but now are the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but have now obtained mercy. What makes this group distinctive is that they've received mercy. All throughout the book, there are some themes that Peter seems to to harp on, to, to emphasize, which is, Uh, There are things that are defiled and things that are undefiled. There are things that are permanent and things that are passing away. There are things that are corrupt and things that are not. Things that are permanent, things that are temporary. And it's as though this people becomes a people because they've received the the mercy of God. And, And what is mercy? Mercy is not fairness. Grace is not fairness. We have to be very careful. If we come before the throne of God, demanding that he be fair with us. Lord, that's not fair. Do what's fair. Be be fair towards me. We're asking him to be just towards us. And all of us are fallen. All of us deserve his wrath. We were by nature objects of wrath. There's none righteous, no, not one. And if God's going to be fair, then he's going to apply the righteous standard of the law towards us. But there are those who he's applying the righteous standard of the law, and he's being fair with them. The people that God has been unfair with are the ones who didn't get what they deserved. That's not fair, except in this case, they've received mercy. They've received his love. When God's wrath is poured out on unbelief, we won't be going, oh no, here he goes, here he goes. He's going to fly off the handle. We're not going to be doing that. Because God is holy and he is just and he is perfect. His wrath is poured out perfectly. Pouring out his wrath is not love. Pouring out his wrath wrath is justice. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life, right? He makes that distinction between a wage and a gift. A wage is something that you work for and earn, and a gift is something that you don't. If you did anything to earn the gift, it's no longer a gift. It's no longer a gift. These people have obtained mercy. And it's not because they were super righteous. It's not because they were the best educated, the best scholars, the best citizens, the best whatever. What makes these people a people now, and they weren't a people before, is the fact that they've received God's mercy. It's as though God's love makes them a people. As though the things that God loves become permanent. The things that God loves last. The things that God loves remain. And other things are blown away. Other things disintegrate. Other things fall apart. What causes the permanence 
is not that we're made out of different stuff. What causes the permanence is that we've received the love of God. What God loves lasts. God's love brings life. So everybody has a people, right? Well, apparently not. Apparently not. These, these people who had a people in the sense that we talked about earlier, in this, in, in this case, says, no, you weren't a people. You weren't a people in an internal sense. Not everybody has a people. You who were once not a people, but now are the people of God. And, and we know that, God, that, that, that this group, this people, God didn't look down the annals and go, oh, I know who's going to accept me, so I'm going to make a setup so where they can, they can accept me. And so in response to their acceptance of me, I will accept them. That's a misunderstanding of our spiritual condition before God makes us alive, before God makes us a people. Our spiritual condition before you became a Christian, before you understood these things, before the Spirit of God uh, indwelt you, was that we were dead. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. Uh, we were spiritual corpses. We, we were alive in one sense, but in another sense, we were dead. We were spiritual corpses. It's just like Ezekiel being told to, uh, um, to prophesy to the Valley of Dry Bones. Why, Lord, why, why would I do that? They're dead. Why would I do that? And th- there has to be something that happens first. The dead people have to be made alive. If, if somebody's, somebody falls down dead right here, and we check him and go, yeah, he's dead. Get him a hamburger. Don't go get him a hamburger. Don't feed him. Don't shine light in his eyes. See if he'll wake up. He's dead. The only way that hamburger is going to be of any value is if he's made a lot, if he's brought back. And that was our spiritual condition. The dead guy isn't going to cry out for a hamburger. He can't. Paul says in 1 Corinthians that, that the things of the spirit are discerned spiritually and that natural man does not understand the things of the spirit, nor can he. He can't. You're not going to talk somebody into the kingdom. You're not going to come up with the best argument to persuade somebody to believe in Christ, salvifically. You're not going to talk somebody... You you could talk somebody into a broken leg, convincing them their leg is broken, but you're not going to convince somebody, uh, talk somebody into the kingdom of God. You're not going to talk them into salvation. They can't. So what has to happen first is God has to make them alive. You're born again, and you cry out. Just like the first time. You're born, they spank you, and you cry. It's not the other way around. You don't cry out, and mom delivers you. Oh, he must want to be delivered now. (laughs) Moms would like that, I think, maybe. Um, Is it going to be now? Just waiting for him to tell me. Um, you, You... you are, you're born and then you cry. You're born and then you hear. You're born and you see. If you could see and hear and believe with your old heart, ears, and, and eyes, you wouldn't need new ones. But God, when he, gives you, when, he, when he causes you to be born again by means of the Spirit, you're made alive. 
He puts flesh on the bones in the valley with Ezekiel. He puts tendons and heart and all the organs, makes them alive again. And that's what it's like as we proclaim the gospel, as we're proclaiming the gospel to, to a cemetery. But some of the inhabitants of the cemetery, God has made alive. We don't know who that is yet. I think it was Spurgeon that said that if God had uh, painted a yellow stripe down the backs of the elect, I would go around lifting shirts. Nope. No, he hasn't. So what do we do? We proclaim the gospel to the world. We declare the gospel to the world. And, but we will see who the elect are because the elect are the ones who respond and believe. They bear fruit. So in a sense, everybody has a people, but in this sense here in the scriptures, not everybody has a people. At least we didn't have a people. You were not a people. So who are your people? Who are your people? Well, this, this, this people here are not just any people. They are a special people. Notice here, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priest, and a holy nation, his own special people. And special so that we may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And this, this kind of bugs us. We don't, you know, we don't want to tell anybody that we are a special people. Or maybe we do want to tell them, and then that should be a problem too. And... Um, because it seems like, well, we, we think too highly of ourselves. And that is definitely a temptation. It's definitely a temptation, especially if you think that you saved you. It, well, see, so I heard the gospel, and I believed the gospel, and therefore I'm saved. And if I hadn't believed it, I wouldn't be saved, so I guess I saved me. And right at the center of your salvation is... You, me. But if, but if in fact we were dead, and that you wouldn't have believed if God hadn't made you alive, and he wouldn't have made you alive if before the foundation of Jupiter, before the foundation of the world, before the foundation of the solar system, he hadn't in his own good purposes elected you, you wouldn't have been made alive. And now all of a sudden you go, God's at the center of my salvation. God's at the center of this gospel. God's at the center of this terrific news. He's the one who acts. He's the one who goes forth and grabs. He's not sitting in heaven waiting for people to take him up on his offer. The kingdom of God is not a passive one. The kingdom of God is like a stone that, that grows into a mountain and fills the earth. He goes out and gets and says, you're coming with me, Mr. Skeleton. Now let's make you alive and clean you up. And as a side note, too oftentimes in our culture, Christians think that, that what we need to do is we need to clean God up. We need to clean him up to make him more presentable to sinners. But the gospel is exactly the opposite. The gospel is the message of how God has cleaned up sinners to make them presentable to him. That's the gospel. His own special people. Well, this wasn't just something Peter was thinking up um, back in the book of Titus. Paul says the same thing. Verse 
For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, that we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearance of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Here, Paul's, Paul's distinction here is that this special people has been purified, purified by the blood of Christ, the sacrifice of Christ. He redeemed us. He paid the penalty. He bought us. But it's his own special people. And sometimes we're embarrassed of that. But if there's nowhere else for you to boast except God's mercy, don't ever be embarrassed about that. If, if you're telling people that, well, awfully, I, made a, I made an awfully good addition to the kingdom of God. I can certainly see why God picked me. Or, you know, and, but you know what? We all know not to say that. Okay? So let's say you're thinking that. That, wow, I made a wonderful addition to the kingdom of God. Yeah. Uh, then, then we should be embarrassed. His own special people. The chosen people. They are a special people. Whom God loves. Who have received mercy. Whom Christ has purified. Whom Christ redeemed. Not just any people, not just a, a group that w- was picked willy nilly. Well, well, wait a minute. Well, so, why did God pick you? If it wasn't because you were going to make a great addition to the kingdom of God, then why did He pick you? Okay, so what's running through your head? You're thinking of all, oh, well, no. Uh, now, what you should be thinking is because it pleased Him. That's all we know. That's all we know. Ephesians chapter 1 says that God, according to the counsel of his own will, predestined us in Christ before the foundation of the earth. According to his own counsels. Why did he do it? Because that's what pleased him. I, I don't know why. And, and as those thoughts tend to drive you to God being the center of it, for the first time you say, well, why me? Like, like the verse in Romans 9 that says that um, um, God is pouring out his wrath uh, on the vessels prepared for destruction that he might make known the riches of his mercy on the vessels prepared for glory. God's destroying the vessels prepared for destruction so that I might know how deep the mercy is that I've received. God's pouring out wrath there that we might know how deep the mercy is because I could be one of those vessels. There's nothing about them that makes them more predisposed to being a vessel like that because I am too. And now all of a sudden, you go, wow, there is only one place that I can boast. And it's in Christ. That's the only thing we can boast in. So if the idea of being a special people is embarrassing, um, it should be if in your mind you're the center of it. 
But if God's in their center of it, and God's the one that gets the glory, then rejoice in it. Rejoice and be glad. It would be a horrible thing if your salvation was dependent on you. It would be a horrible thing. Because natural man doesn't get the things of the Spirit. You were a corpse. You couldn't cry out. No one would be saved. So not just any people, a special people, not just any special people, he says, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. These people are special, and they're royal. It is a, a royal kingdom of priests. Yeah, we're talking about us. A royal priesthood. Not only have they received God's mercy, not only have they been redeemed and purified, they've been made a royal priesthood. So imagine that. So you're, uh, uh, you're a, a, a sinner, I'm a sinner, and God, God forgives us of our sin. That's, that's marvelous. That's a great thing. But he didn't end there. He, he forgave your sin by giving you the righteousness of his son. He fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law in his son and gave that righteousness to you. And he doesn't just stop there. He also adopted you. And now Jesus is your elder brother. And he didn't just stop there. He gave you an eternal inheritance. And he didn't just stop there. He's going to make you kings and priests. You will judge. You will be judges ruling with our elder brother Jesus. We are a royal priesthood, a kingly priest. Who are your people? Your people are royal priests. They're a chosen generation. They are the ones who've received mercy. They're the ones who've been purified by the blood of Christ. They are a royal priesthood. Now, Royalty has its problems. High nobility brings high envy. There's, oftentimes there's disdain. There's disdain for the nobility. There's disdain for the royal. There's hatred towards the royal. And if you're surprised at hatred, don't be, because Jesus said, be wary when all the world speaks well of you. Now, if the world hates you because of the message, that's a good thing. If the world hates you because you're an arrogant noble, then that's the messenger. There's often great envy, great disdain towards the royalty. It can be a dangerous thing. There'll be hatred. They're going to mock you. They're going to, they're going to look for any way they can. They're going, to, they're going to feel vindicated when they see you fall. They're going to enjoy that. But what are they going to do with you responding in love? What are they going to do with you being humble and grateful and serving them and seeking them out and desiring 
to proclaim the good news. What are they going to do with that? They're going to expect you to be arrogant and filled with yourself. And there is some, some level of that which um, is, uh, is a little bit unavoidable. But not arrogance. Not self-centeredness. We understand how it is we've been saved, and in response to that, we go out and we seek the world. We proclaim the good news to the world. Sometimes nobility is dangerous. It's not easy. Sometimes our people look at the other groups of people in the world and go, man, the world's got the best music. The world makes the best movies. The world's got the best clothing. The world's got the best politics. The world's got... Why don't we have that? There's this allure of looking around. And what we're looking at are things that are passing away. What we're looking at are things that are disintegrating. There are things that don't have the love of God, the things that God doesn't love, that are falling apart. And we are sometimes tempted to be drawn to the things that the world has. And they're not eternal things. Being the people of God brings life. God's love brings life. Sometimes it's hard to be a people. As God has called all these people over many generations, that he he called them before the foundations of the world, Um, he didn't bring everybody in because they mesh perfectly with your personality. Uh, we're, We're baptizing a guy this morning at Trinity that somebody in the church saw him sleeping on a park bench, talked to him, and this guy is going for it. This guy is walking in the light. This guy accepted the gospel, and he is filled with tattoos all over him. He's got one a skull on his shoulder over here. It's just kind of funny, you know, come up out of the water and you got these tattoos on, you know. And, 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 he has got a rap sheet that is a mile long, drug addict, all sorts of stuff. Everything you can think of. Uh, robbery, weapons charges, everything. It's on there. And he's, we don't have a lot of people like that in the church. I'm, I'm, I'm so excited that he's there. But, you know, it's not like we have uh, a lot of that. But... I'm glad we do. I'm glad he's there. I so it's an exciting thing. And actually, his brother and uh, I believe a mother live in a, in a in a kind of a camp that's out in the woods, and it's just a den for uh, all sorts of drugs and nonsense going on. And we're trying to start a Bible study down there, so that'll be kind of fun. And we're going to make sure our life insurance policy is in place. <laughs> But the guy says, yeah, let's go. Let's go have a Bible study down there. My brother needs to hear this. Okay. <laughs> okay. Sometimes it's hard to be a people. You're going to have people that, you, that step on your toes. You're going to step on other people's toes. You're going to have personality conflicts. But we know how to deal with it, right? We'll deal with it as Christians. Not everybody meshes together perfectly, and that's okay. 
for everybody that you can think of that, man, he's really irritating. Like, there are probably people that just think I am the worst, most irritating person around. And, and you know, for for every one of those that you can name, boy, that poison, that guy's annoying. I sure wish he wasn't part of our people, or I can't believe he's part of our people. There are other people out there, they're praying for grace to know how to deal with you. Okay? That we all are in that boat. That they're asking the Lord, how do I minister to this brother, this sister? How do I, how do I get along? How do I... And that's, that's the way it is. That it isn't like all of a sudden we became robots that he installed a pack and now you're all, you know, in, in, in the same livery and all, all the same personality and all mesh perfectly. It's not that way. Sometimes it's hard to be a people. But you're a royal people, a chosen priesthood, a royal priesthood, a chosen people, a chosen generation that has been purified, that lasts, that doesn't disintegrate, that doesn't fall away. It's not based on blood. It's not based on blood. Um, John 1, 12. There's a lot of things in our, in our culture that are based on blood, whether it's whether it's an aristocracy or whether it's inheritances or sometimes even wars, this is, this is not, these people are not related to each other by blood in a sense. John chapter 1 verse 12, he says, uh, He came to his own people and his own did not receive him, but as many as received him, to them he gave them the right to become the children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. These people are, you are not all related to people, to each other as a people because you all share the same blood. You share the same water. It's as though baptism, frankly, is the sign that connects us. It's the thing that identifies. It's God's mark on you saying, this one's mine. Water is thicker than blood. And we're held together by our faith. We're held together by the grace of God. We're held together as a people. And we manifest this to the world by our love for one another. So who, who are your people? Your people are the, is the church. The people of God that he, whom he has selected, whom he has chosen. Your feather, fellow brothers and sisters that you will spend eternity with even the difficult ones, even the ones that are hard to get along with. If God is dining with them, so should we. If God has drawn them into his kingdom, if God has revealed his love and his grace in them, so should we. So who are your people? All right, let's look at those first things that, that, that seem to emanate from the, book of first, from the letter of First Peter, where he says that the people are scattered. So what's Peter's answer with regard to community, with regard to the people of God? He says, you're still one people. You're one people. Even though you've been scattered, don't worry. Distance doesn't affect your, your inclusion in the people of God. Being spread out, find comfort, find peace in the fact that you're one people. The people are persecuted. Even though you can't see God... God is present in the body. You believe in a God, and God's invisible, but wait a minute. Because you're part of the people of God, Christ is present with you in the midst of your persecution. How is he with you? Because he indwells 
your neighbor. He indwells your brother or sister. And Christ is manifest as we love and care for one another, as we encourage one another, as we tell one another, don't give up. The people struggle with their faith. A community of faithful people builds each other up. They're there to challenge you. They're there to say, you're doing a great job. Believe. Remember how faithful God has been. Reflect on how God has been and don't give up. The community of faithful people builds us up in our faith. Now, people lose their confidence. People are losing their confidence. He says, you're an eternal people. You're an eternal people, a people that will never fade away. Your confidence comes from knowing that you are part of an eternal people that will never fade away. Rest in that. Find comfort in that. Find peace in that. Find confidence in knowing that you're part of the people of God. And therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations. Hopefully, it, 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 it causes you to think about the people. We're not just a rotary club. We're not just some sort of a service group or some sort of a mutual interest group that we all like flying remote control planes or we all like uh, growing dahlias or we all like traveling to here or there. It, it's not that type of a connection. This is a royal priesthood. This is a chosen generation. This is a group that's received the love of God that will never, ever pass away. Interestingly, Paul... Paul was born of the right tribe. He was circumcised on the right day. He was educated by the right, um, by the right rabbi, Gamaliel. He excelled amongst his, his uh, fellow brethren, his, uh, his, uh, other, the other Pharisees. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was the top dog. Academically accomplished much. But he tells the, the, the saints in Philippi that they are his crown. That the people are his crown, not his academic achievements. They're, they're like a, a, a dung heap, he says, a pile of rubbish compared to knowing Christ and serving him. When we invest in people, we're making an eternal investment. So, yeah, you know, you're, you've got a job and you're, you're building stuff or you're doing this or you're providing that. All these things that we spend our eight, you know, eight hours a day doing, and there's an eternal nature to those things. You're doing them by faith. But when you invest in people, when you invest in the people of God, you're making something that will live forever. The word of God and his people live forever. That's a great investment. Let's give thanks. Father in heaven, your word is deep. Your kindness and mercy is deep. And as you reveal these things to us, Father, we pray that you would grant us humility, that you would grant us an understanding that would give glory to you, that would put you in the center of our salvation, understanding that there was nothing we did to earn it. Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for our Lord Jesus. 